Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health. Today, I have Dr. Yuri Marisic. He is the chief medical officer of Paratherapeutics, which is a digital therapeutic. And something unique about it is it's actually a prescription that has to be prescribed by a physician or a psychiatrist. So it's a fascinating new area of the addiction treatment behavioral health space. Before I talk a little bit more about that, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Track9. Track9 Informatics is a data-driven approach to substance use disorder and mental health treatment. By assessing nine pathology and resilience factors that have been scientifically shown to be most critical to client success each week, Track9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating which client symptoms, provides facility-specific clinical outcome analytics compared to national averages, and learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure, all of which help your program improve client outcomes, support payer negotiations, and reduce AMAs. To get a free consultation on how this data-driven approach can improve your program, call 833-998-7229 or email contact at track9.com. So Pair Therapeutics is a digital therapeutic or a digital prescription, and this was quite intriguing to me when I first started talking to them God, last year sometime, I think it was, because I've never heard of a prescription, obviously, for a piece of software. Usually think of a pill that someone is given or some kind of medicine. So this is definitely a new and evolving field. As many of you know, there are literally probably tens of thousands of new startups that are creating healthcare apps or you know digital health integrations these days. Um, I'm not always excited about most of them, quite frankly, uh, but Pear was unique and it stood out to me because it actually has FDA approval. So they went through an FDA approval process using third-party clinical trials um, and then got you know, approved to actually be a prescription that's provided to patients through their physician or psychiatrist or other care provider. Um, so really learning about that, we'll dive very deeply into that. And then one of the other reasons that I'm really interested in what Pear is doing is they have the opportunity to significantly bring down the cost of care. So Dr. Yuri will share some of their outcomes data that went through the FDA approval process, as well as what they have been seeing since approval with the tens of thousands of patients across the U.S. that are currently using it or have used it, I should say, and really learning about you know how this can come alongside and support patients you know, it's an evolving field. There's lots of opportunity here. And I think as, you know, Dr. Kathleen Carroll showed us with CBT for CBT, there is a really strong efficacy around just a, a digital therapeutic, not even necessarily with um, provider support, which is really interesting. Now, PAIR has provider support. Um, and so they'll talk about how providers can use it in conjunction with what else they're doing to support patients and their uh, treatment outcomes. But it's just a really interesting, interesting space. And like I said, so much opportunity to bring down the cost of care, to make care more convenient and therefore more usable and still have a large positive impact on a patient's life. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Yuri. Great to have you on the show here today and excited to discuss paratherapeutics. It's definitely something that I wasn't super familiar with until I had started talking with uh, your team over there. So if you'd just like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a bit about Pear and what it does. Sure. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's um, been great to get to know you and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, brief background is I'm an internal medicine physician, practiced for a number of years. And during my time practicing, I increasingly became frustrated with a lack of treatment options, particularly for patients with mental and behavioral health conditions. I often saw patients who would end up in the emergency room, for example, with medical problems and also with a diagnosis, for example, of bipolar or addiction. And oftentimes those patients required significant care. They might end up in the ICU. We would 
help get their medical problem um, back on track, but we had very few, if any, treatment options as well as a poor delivery system and infrastructure for helping support them with their mental and behavioral health condition. And three to four weeks later, we'd see the patient back in the same situation where their medical problem would have an exacerbation because we were not treating the underlying drivers of their overall care as a whole person. Um, and so those observations helped me to focus on population approaches of helping to try and improve uh, the health and the treatment options. And I'd spent time both doing traditional uh, molecular drug development and had spent time on the digital health side, but never thought that those two worlds would come together. And as I started talking to uh, academic researchers and um, people who started to generate insights around the possibility of software to actually be a treatment, I discovered that there was a real opportunity to bring digital treatments that would work either alone or in combination with medications to patients to help us treat patients more holistically, particularly in mental and behavioral health. So were you pretty integral in building out all the, the back-end functionality and the design of the, the therapeutic? So I've, I've been with working with payers since 2014, and it was really first my work and my team's work and those of my colleagues as we started to uh, better collaborate with some of the early thought leaders in this space and then to help develop what were our first uh, therapeutics, particularly Reset, which was the first uh, prescription digital therapeutic to receive FDA market authorization um, with a label to treat disease, um, and it was the first to receive any uh, any treatment claims. And then also I um, led the team, in addition to Reset, the, the team for Reset O, which uh, received breakthrough status from FDA to treat patients with opioid use disorder in combination with the medication buprenorphine. Got it. Okay. So what's really interesting and what was taking me a little bit to wrap my head around when we first started talking is, so this is a digital therapeutic, but it's actually a prescription. So there's a lot of apps and things out there, you know, for working with mental health or meditation or what have you. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily classify them as something that's a, a prescription, you know, when we're thinking like going and getting, you know, use Xanax prescription or, you know, for MAT, getting your bup prescription. So you have actual FDA approval and it's a prescription, but it's, it's simply the app. It's the electronic engagement with uh, the content and the therapeutic system. Can, can you explain that? I mean, how does that work from the patient standpoint? That's right, Nick. So uh, these prescription digital therapeutics are really different in kind and not just degree from health and wellness. So I'm sure many of your, your listeners and myself included use health and wellness products. Um, we might use an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. We might use a meditation app. And many of these are great tools because they can help patients with support uh, for um, you know, some level of symptoms. And also they are able to be deployed from a population perspective. But what's, what's different about these is just like say vitamins um, are um, a approach to help keep somebody healthy, um, prescription digital therapeutics are rather software interventions or software treatments that are intended to treat patients with serious disease. And so that means that they deliver evidence-based treatments that are specific to the disease. So things like a specific form of cognitive behavioral therapy, contingency management, they can interact and provide recommendations around how to best use a medication and they are intended to be integrated into clinical care for patients with, as I mentioned, serious disease like opioid use disorder. And so, you know, a physician, for example, would not prescribe a Fitbit 
for opioid use disorder um, to actually improve outcomes. But a prescription digital therapeutic can't um, because it is intended to, it goes through the good manufacturing practice, practices, it goes through, through the randomized clinical trial, the FDA reviews not just the manufacturing, but also all the clinical data, and they replicate that analysis, and then they give a clear label as to who the software treatment is for, who it is not for, how is it to be used, and then payer continues to monitor, to evaluate for adverse events, to evaluate complaints, and to make changes and improve the prescription digital therapeutic only in a way where we can um, have a high degree of confidence that we're going to improve the efficacy while maintaining safety. Okay, so I think there's two questions on the prescription end. Traditionally, when we think of a prescription, we think, you know, take this pill once a day before you eat, right? So first question is around the timing, you know, how, how do you work that on a digital therapeutic end? And then the second question is really variability. So again, with a pill, a pill is a pill, right? You take it, you take a certain dose, but with a, a digital therapeutic, you know, if we're talking about CBT, for example, there's such a variety of engagements that can happen, you know, under the CBT umbrella. So how do you determine, you know, what engagements are happening, what order they're happening in, you know, how does that get delivered? Um, within the software? Yeah, you know, I think both both really important questions. So, you know, in terms of uh, the prescription piece um, and, and how that gets fulfilled, so these are uh, treatments just like a medication or a medical device where the patient um, needs to be accurately diagnosed by their clinician, and then they receive a prescription um, that goes through a specialty pharmacy. The patient downloads the software from the Google Play or the Apple App Store, and then they input that prescription access code. And that makes sure that the patient's getting the appropriate treatment for them, that they have the accurate diagnosis. They also get the appropriate education from their clinician as to how to use the treatment, how to use it alongside any other treatments they're, they're receiving. And then are they responding? Um, so this isn't this isn't for a disease where a patient can just manage this by themselves. It's where they really need that holistic uh, clinical care team. Um, and this treatment, this software treatment or PDT fits right into that. Um, the second part, which, which I think is really exciting to me, is also the insight around engagement. So, you know, to, to build on your example, um, when a pers uh, physician like myself might prescribe for example, a benzodiazepine, like you mentioned with Xanax, um, I don't know whether or not the patient is using it. I don't know whether or not the patient is using it appropriately or how frequently are they using it or do they need a higher dose? Whereas with a prescription digital therapeutic, the, um, both myself and the whole clinical care team get access to all the insights around the patient's engagement, the frequency, the time of day, even the the patient themselves can see that, and then that can form the basis of their clinical interactions during a visit, um, whether in face-to-face -face or via tele, that can help to more appropriately guide um, the patient's care over time. Um, so that's, I think, really uh, important from a delivery perspective. I think thinking as the developer of these therapeutics, it also gives us insight on a population level to help make the software even more engaging. Um, and so we, for example, have published data that shows that we see um, in our clinical trials and we even see higher rates in the real world of patients, for example, out to um, 12 or 24 weeks at the end of a prescription and the patient can always get another prescription where we're seeing 60 or 70% uh, rate of engagement which is much higher than the typical 3% of engagement that you see in typical health and wellness apps that's published at the end of 30 days. So I definitely want to explore that data a little bit more, but I kind of want to finish up on the prescription piece first. So uh, another question with the prescription is generally things have a prescription because of danger of misuse, right? So we want your benzo to be prescribed by a doctor because we don't want people to get too much or overuse it. 
So what's the value of having it as a prescription rather than just a digital therapeutic that, you know, anyone could pay for and download? Yeah, it, I, I think it's a really interesting question as, you know, the, the push to have patients be more engaged with their care is a, is a really important one. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, for patients who are trying to maybe manage uh, some difficulty sleeping, or maybe I'm feeling a little anxious or a little depressed, but I don't have a serious disease or a, a clinical indication, um, being able to self-manage is, is a great help because it gives me insight into my disease and it's more convenient. But for patients with a, a really serious disease like opioid use disorder, expecting them or counting on them to be able to, to overcome what is a very difficult disease all by themselves um, is really actually putting a burden on them that could cause a lot of harm. And so the harm could be, does the patient have the accurate diagnosis? Is the patient responding to the treatment? Is the treatment integrating with their other treatments like the medication? Um, are there things that come up while the patient's using the software treatment that could have risks, for example, of actually worsening or triggering um, additional substance use? or risks of suicide or suicide attempts. Um, so these are all for serious diseases like addiction, um, really important reasons why the FDA agreed that this is the treatment and these are diseases where really the patient and the use of the intervention needs to be under the management of a clinician and the clinical care team to make sure that the patients have the highest likelihood of a good outcome and continue to be safe. Okay. So from Paris' perspective, it's really the fact that you want them connected to a professional team of care rather than self-managing. And this team of care, you know, again, I can go to my PCP and get a prescription for Xanax, right? Um, so in the current way that you guys are operating, is this something that's being prescribed by a PCP or you keep talking about a clinical care team? So is this, does this have to be prescribed by a psychiatrist, for example? The delivery of care is definitely, I think, an, an interesting area where we continue to see innovation. So historically, and, and I'll just keep using the example for addiction, historically addiction has been predominantly treated by specialty care um, clinicians and specialty care clinics. Um, but the ability for primary clin care clinicians to treat addiction has been growing with greater education and we really need uh, addiction to be a type of um, a type of disease that can be and is being screened and managed by clinicians in primary care as well as in specialty. And the specialty uh, clinicians is a support for them. And so we see both. We see uh, very high rates of use in clinics that we. Um, are working with in the specialty treatment, so um, specialty addiction treatment providers. But we also are seeing high use in integrated delivery networks and primary care clinics, um, particularly those that are trying to take a holistic integrated approach. Um, for example, we have a partnership with a Kaiser Permanente where we're doing a project in um, integrating into primary care clinics uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And that's really this move of having addiction be integrated, just like other forms of mental and behavioral health, into the everyday care. Um, when I use the, the term clinical care team, I'm really just trying to emphasize the fact that the, the model previously where you have a physician and a patient, and that's really the primary interaction, is really being... Um, supplemented and transformed into one where there is really a care continuum and a care team where you might have a physician or an NP or a PA who's surrounded by other members, by um, uh, nurses who might be surrounded by managed care individuals who might have um, engagement individuals or therapists or in addiction peer recovery individuals who are all part of a holistic and multidisciplinary team to support the patient in their journey. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely the future of care is making sure that team is connected and collaborating, which I think healthcare has been trying to do for decades. <laughs> Struggling. It, it's taken a long time for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But so on the physician end, you know, this is interesting to me because I, I think that would be challenging. I guess I'm interested in uh, your comments around how it's been playing out so far in your experience with PAIR. So, you know, your traditional PCP just doesn't have experience with addiction or mental health, right? You know, if I told them, hey, look, here's a digital therapeutic that's delivering CBT, you know, I think they're just going to give me a blank look. And so how how are they being educated on that or what are you how are you seeing them use the tool and then how have you seen them start to actually kind of learn about these different aspects of mental health and maybe improve their own care delivery yeah it's a, it's a really interesting um question i mean this is this is a whole new class of treatment and so healthcare has seen new classes of a treatment introduced uh in the past um, so this is not a, a, a novel situation, but it is a new treatment tool, um, a new treatment intervention. And so there's a lot of education that's required. There's a lot of education that's required of clinicians, of provider organizations, of payer organizations. And so that takes time. And so um, payer, and thankfully there are others uh, as well who are working to educate physicians um, about this whole new treatment class. Um, and just to give a little brief sense of scale, going into um, 2020, Pierre had the only uh, first two PDTs on the market that had received FDA market authorization. Coming out of the end of 2020, there were four additional ones, one more pairs. And then also there were three other organizations who each got there first. And so all these organizations are now working to help provide that education to the whole sector of clinicians. Um, definitely it's being done through uh, publications of scientific journals, through uh, continuing medical education, but then also lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations um, on the medical affairs side and on the commercial side to educate all those. And then what we see is we've now seen tens of thousands of scripts of our therapeutics in the real world. Um, and so we now have uh, clinicians who are really experts in how to use these treatments with their patients. And they're able to serve also then as educators and um, support for their peers into how to integrate this into the practice, how they manage patients with a prescription digital therapeutic, and also exploring um, additional patient uh, populations that they um, find that they want to use these in, for example, like uh, transitions um, of care from like inpatient to outpatient or ER, et cetera. First question, just real quick, sense of scale. So how many prescriptions have been written for a pair and then how many patients are currently on a prescription, you know, as of today? Yeah, so we, um, we've seen uh, tens of thousands of scripts um, right now, as we're actually becoming a public company, we don't release the specific numbers of how many are actively um, being treated versus how many historically have, um, but we are seeing a real significant scale um, as these first therapeutics really were available in 2019 is the first time that they were both available, uh, reset and reset out. Um, and we've now expanded into over 30 states with clinicians across those states, as well as now payers who are uh, re, um, really supporting access uh, of these patients and reimbursing for the therapeutics. Okay. And then how about continuing the prescription? So, I mean, again, this is kind of unique, right? Or it's at least novel. If I want to leave my PCP and I want to go see a, a psychiatrist or a counselor even, you know, who is able to continue providing this prescription for me? Yeah, it, it's it's this is why I think the the point that you and I were talking about earlier around the care team is so important is that our PDTs and the platform that we've built is really intended to integrate the patient with their clinical care team and across their different clinicians rather than be a fragmenter. Um, you'll see different models out there where you'll see uh, some platforms or approaches that's trying to take patients from their primary care or from their specialty or from a delivery network and kind of siphon them off and then keep them. Um, our, our approach is really the opposite, which is to integrate with them. And so 
it, the you know the patient ultimately is the one to decide what are the uh, clinicians that they're going to seek. So, for example, if a patient receives a prescription from a addiction clinician, but then they want to go see a psychiatrist or they want their primary care clinician to get access to the dashboard, um, then we're able to expand that. Currently, um, when patients initially get um, their prescription and get onboarded, they're able to have multiple members of their care team. And importantly, in uh, behavioral health, that oftentimes might include not just the physician or the NP or the PA, but a behavioral health specialist, like a, a counselor, either a licensed, licensed social worker or a clinical psychologist who's also able to give it access because they spend such important time together with the patient. So going back to that PCP piece, you know, again, with the traditional prescription, the PCP is going to ask, you know, are you taking the prescription and how is it making you feel? You know, good, bad side effects. The digital prescription, especially utilizing CBT, there's a high potential that patients are going to be like, well, you know, I had this lesson or I had this content and I have all these questions on it, right? Or I'm not sure I'm implementing it right. Is that coming up and, and how are the PCPs dealing with that very different interaction? Yeah, I think that the ability to have insight into the the patient's engagement and then use that to drive their time together um, is really important and we receive a lot of positive feedback about that we've heard that some clinicians who've used for example different population health platforms have described it as really a black box because they don't have insight into how's the patient doing what they're doing and what you're describing is a situation where we hear from um, both the physician, but also particularly from the behavioral health specialist, the ability to look at what the patient is telling them in concert with the dashboard and then say, oh, I see you, you know, had a time this weekend where you almost used and then you um, performed a functional analysis and let's go over that together. Or I'm struggling with, like you mentioned, you know, this, um, these concepts or principles of of my treatment um, and I'd like to spend more time. And that actually helps the clinical care team to be more efficient. It also helps them to use their time differently. So we we have some PCPs or some psychiatrists who have a lot of comfort and want to have that detailed discussion with the patient around um, their behavioral health um, management. We have other PCPs, for example, who might say, you know, are you using it and is it working? But when the patient goes to dig into some of those um, more specific treatment concepts, that is being done by their behavioral health specialist. Okay. And I think that's an example to me of how we're trying to get the optimal clinician um, interacting with the patient at the optimal time in the optimal way. That makes sense. Okay. All right. So going back to this FDA piece and the evidence base, so obviously a lot of people mention evidence based, but you know, I'd like to dig into a little bit of what that means for a pair and then also connecting it to the FDA approval process and how that worked. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think important, you know, what's so important for any interventions and um, I would say healthcare is a show me, not a tell me sport. There's a lot of people who like to make claims about things. But in healthcare, we really need, given the nature of what we're discussing, which is patient's health, to make sure that these are interventions, diagnostics, um, models of care that actually work, that they work in terms of being safe, they don't make cause harm, that they actually improve outcomes, and ultimately, are they cost-effective? And so because of that, any intervention, and you know, we've all had a front row seat of watching how this happens um, with everything that's been going on with the COVID-19 pandemic. And software um, really sh should be held to the same standard. It shouldn't get a pass just because it's software. Um, I think many of us would agree that there are, are many things that we see that when people make claims about that don't work in healthcare. Um, and software is no different. And so from our perspective, it's really important that if um, clinicians are going to use our therapeutics with patients, they need to know that they're safe, effective, and they also need to know how to use them. 
um, like you and I were talking about earlier around education. What's the right patient population? What's not the right patient population? What is the right time? How do I use this with um, other uh, types of care and treatment? And then it's important for payers to know, does this work? Is it safe? Um, is it going to ultimately save money? And then patients just expect it. Patients expect that we have a system, um, and that's the reason that the FDA is there, is the FDA is, serves as a third party that is independent, that can actually dig into the data. And this isn't just them reading a peer-reviewed manuscript. This is them going through all the raw data, replicating the safety analyses, replicating the effectiveness and efficacy analysis, and also determining is the manufacturing practice and process reliable? Um, you know, to, to use the example you gave earlier around Xanax as a benzodiazepine, um, when a patient goes to pick that up from a pharmacy, they expect that that's really Xanax, that it was manufactured safely, that it was manufactured appropriately, that it's genuine. And so as a physician, when I prescribe, I expect that what the patient is getting at the pharmacy is going to be real, that it's going to work, that when the patient needs it, it will actually function as intended. And so the FDA does all those things. So when we develop any of our uh, PDT, we focus first and foremost on what is the scientific mechanisms or the evidence-based treatments that will go into them that will be appropriate for the disease area. And in particular, we talked today mostly about addiction. Um, we then manufacture all the software according to good manufacturing practices. So just the way software is in an insulin pump or implantable defibrillator or continuous glucose monitor. Um, so our software is coded. We then run the uh, software therapeutics or the PDTs through randomized clinical trials. Um, and it's important that in these studies, these are studies conducted under good clinical practices with the standard endpoints that would use in the field so that that way clinicians, regulators, payers can look at the studies and actually compare apples to apples um, with the endpoint. And then we take all that data, the manufacturing data, the data around how the software should be used, its reliability data, and then we um, also submit the randomized clinical trial data to FDA, and then FDA independently evaluates that. And then if they agree, they provide approval or market authorization to the um, product with a label that very clearly spells out um, the indication, which is who's the patient for, how is it to be used, um, a description of the clinical data, uh, etc. And that, that forms the basis, too, around how we communicate to um, clinicians and to payers to use these, to make sure that we are only making claims about these therapeutics that is supported by the data and that the products are going to be safe and effective, and that then we continue to monitor them over time. So can you give us some specifics on what some of those efficacy or outcomes um, studies that you provided you through the third party or the FDA, FDA were? Sure. So, um, for example, um, for our therapeutic uh, reset, which is for patients with substance use disorder and substance use disorder due to cocaine, cannabis, stimulants like methamphetamine, it's in fact the only FDA authorized treatment period for patients with cocaine, cannabis, and stimulants because there is no pharmacotherapy for those patients. Um, there was a large randomized clinical trial of 399 patients who were randomized to best-of-breed face-to-face treatment. Um, the study was actually funded and conducted by the National Institute of Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and run through their um, 10 clinical trial uh, sites. And patients were randomized to receive uh, best-of-breed face-to-face counseling for four to six hours per week versus patients in the intervention arm received two hours less of counseling and they received the digital treatment. Um, what we found when we looked at uh, abstinence and retention during the last four weeks was that patients who were randomized to receive um, reset had a more than doubling in rates of abstinence. Uh, so they went, patients who were randomized to reset 
had a 40% rate of abstinence compared to 17%, and that was statistically significant. And then we saw an improvement in retention as well. Um, and retention is really important because it's predictive of long-term outcomes. Um, we furthermore uh, evaluated adverse events, and you see in patients with substance use disorder, very high rates of adverse events. You can see suicide attempts, you see GI bleeds, and we did see those, but we did not see any worsening of those in patients who were randomized uh, to the intervention. Um, and so this was the data that the FDA used to um, support their ultimate um, clearance and market authorization of uh, reset. Okay. And then the abstinence rates, what was the time window on that? So it was during the last four weeks. Um, so uh, typically the way a lot of addiction research has been done is to look at uh, you're trying to take patients who are actively using a substance and move them to discontinuing and ultimately moving them into recovery. Um, and this follows a harm reduction approach where sometimes early on patients might recognize the negative impact of their substance use, but they might not be ready to completely stop. And so that takes time. And so the way the studies are conducted is to look at um, does the patients achieve no substance use or does achieve abstinence um, during the last four weeks? So is it sustained during the last four weeks of the treatment? And then how long was the study? Um, that study was 12 weeks. Um, okay. And we've had studies that are multiple studies that are 12 weeks, 23 weeks, uh, 52 weeks as well. And then you talked about retention. So same question there, retention. What, is, what did that mean exactly? How long? And was that stepping down a level of care, continuing care? Uh, can you just define it a little bit? Sure. So retention was defined as the last face-to-face uh, -face appointment. So um, unfortunately, in addiction, when patients often um, relapse or start using again, they stop showing up. And so um, because of that, uh, retention is an important endpoint. We know that patients who, even if they're continuing to use, who stay in treatment, do better. And so we measured what was the retention rate of patients um, who were randomized to the prescription digital therapeutic reset. And we found 72.2% of patients were still engaged in treatment at the end of the study, um, compared to 63.5%. So that was during the entire 12 weeks. Um, and as I shared, while that was, this was the, the study that was evaluated by FDA. There were studies that were 23 weeks and 52 weeks that we published, and we've also recently published a significant amount of real-world data, so evaluating um, the use of the PDP in the real world, and we found, in fact, consistent or, in some cases, even um, uh, improved uh, rates of um, retention and substance use compared to the randomized clinical trials. Okay, and then do you have any data or do you know the data around um, app usage? So like how many times per week or average number of hours per week that patients are using it? We, we do. And, um, you know, this we, I think, is a, a really, to me, a really exciting area because it's how we can partner with provider organizations and individual clinicians to develop better models of care. Right. So um, as you and I were talking about earlier around team-based care, we're able to, to look at those. So, um, for example, in uh, Reset-O, we've seen that patients in the real world, so not just in the clinical trials, are continuing to use um, Reset-O, um, that greater than 50% of them are continuing to use Reset-O out to 12 weeks. Um, which relative to published data in health and wellness, we often see a 30-day retention at 3%. Um, and so this is um, very significant and a very difficult to treat patient population. And in published Medicaid data, um, patients who have buprenorphine fill rates are typically between the 37 and 40% at 30 days. Um, so we're seeing patients really engaging um, at rates that you would not normally expect with any software, let alone patients who are struggling with addiction. Um, but to me, what's exciting is not just that we're seeing that engagement, but that we're able to take those numbers and then work with the provider organizations and the individual clinicians to say, how do we continue to 
engage with patients and how do we build care models that are a combination of in-person visits or telemedicine visits versus asynchronous care with the digital treatments to really maximize um, outcomes across their population. Right, and there's two, two kind of questions or related questions there. One, why do you think that you're seeing better retention outcomes or usage statistics within the app versus others? And then two, are you able to see anything within the data that can be relayed to clinicians for outcome efficacy? So for example, we noticed that patients that use the app three hours per week you know, do better than patients that use it one hour per week. Sure. So yeah, I can, I can speak to both of those specifically. The, I think the, the, the really interesting thing about why patients are, are engaging um, at sub, such high levels, and I mentioned, for example, Medicaid buprenorphine rates. Um, within addiction within the U.S., sadly, we know that only 11% of patients get any treatment. Um, and we know of the patients who, who do get treatment of that 11% who, for example, with opioid use disorder, get buprenorphine naloxone, which is one of the main uh, forms of medication, that 80 to 90% of those patients do not receive um, any behavioral treatment. So when you compare, for example, um, patients who have like a 37 to 40% rate of um, use of MAT or buprenorphine naloxone, the fact that we are adding a behavioral treatment to that, to me, says that when you have something that is effective, that's working in concert with the medication, that you're going to have better outcomes. As to why then this specific type of software works, um, we really worked very hard to develop mechanisms of action that help engage the patient. So, for example, each of the therapy lessons or modules take roughly 15 to 20 minutes, so it's small bite size. It's relevant information to the patient. Um, we've integrated a mechanism called contingency management, which really drives um, early engagement for patients with addiction. It helps induce a dopamine response in the nucleus accumbens, which is one of the pleasure centers of the brain, that helps to reinforce the patient's engagement with treatment. And then we continue to look at how can we adapt this to the software and their use um, for different patient populations over time. So it's not a static thing where we say, oh, look, we've gotten uh, engagement numbers um, that are uh, where we want them to be. We're always working to try and figure out how can we engage with patients and make them better by making the software convenient, easy to use, relevant, and rewarding. That's great. Anything in the data that you've seen around certain populations? So, you know, do you see anything that works differently or better with whether it's gender or geography or primary drug of choice? You know, are you seeing anything around efficacy in that direction? We do. And, and maybe I'll, I'll speak. You, I think you had a second question earlier, Nick, that I'll also speak to. And I'll, I'll try and speak to both 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 of those. So I think one of the interesting things we've seen is we, you know, you know, and I'll, I'll again use the benzodiazepine example. When when benzodiazepines like Xanax are developed, there is so much work that's done to try and determine what's the right dose, right? Like how much and how frequent. And so in PDTs, we're doing the same thing. What is the right amount of the PDT? How much? How frequent? And so we really use the data to try and understand that. And what we've found consistently in our clinical trials as well as now in our real-world data, is that it is consistent results um, and consistent use up to these four therapy lessons per week in Reset and Reset Out. It's different in some of our other products because it's a different patient population, but in, in addiction, we find that it's roughly about an hour spaced out over the week. It's not all at once, in fact. You don't want it all at once. You want it really spaced out. And patients who complete um, closer to four therapy lessons per week, they don't even need to, like four therapy lessons per week is perfect, but if they get close to the four therapy lessons per week during their first four weeks and they do it consistently each week, 
those are the patients who do the best. And we've actually seen a dose response where those patients who do one therapy lesson each week versus two therapy lessons each week and so on up to four, that there's a stair-step approach of the more those therapy lessons those patients do, the better their outcomes in terms of abstinence, in terms of retention, in terms of long-term um, engagement overall, and decrease, in fact, in cost of care. Um, and that's data we published. It's really interesting. So after an hour, so four lessons, 20 minutes each, after about an hour per week, you're seeing diminishing returns on that? We, we actually do see that. There's a bit of a U-shaped curve where when we've looked out past, so if you look at patients who do five therapy lessons per week on average or six, with six which is more than they're rec recommended, um, we actually start to see a slight decrease. It's like there's um, in traditional molecular drug uh, development, you would say there's like saturation of the receptor. Like the receptor can know, even if you put more drug, the receptor can't send any more signals. And so we are trying to understand for each patient population, and ultimately it may be different for individual patients, but right now on patient populations, on a, on a population scale, we're seeing that that four therapy lesson per week tends to be optimal. That's fascinating. And then anything around the, the different demographic data? Uh, we, so we definitely see um, areas where whether um, different uh, geographical regions um, by sex, by age. And so we, this is an area where we're constantly working to make um, the uh, software uh, refined to um, fit with those different um, sub, subgroups. Um, we've also been doing a bunch of work uh, in um, additional languages as well. And for example, like our work in Spanish, we're doing work to help make sure that it's not just a language translation, but it is also um, culturally adapted so that yeah. the vignettes and the, the videos and even the language um, is appropriate uh, to those different um, subgroups. So that's, that's a really important learning, and I think that's an important point for any developer um, as they're trying to make sure that this is something that, that is going to be optimally engaged across uh, different patient populations, particularly underserved and, and minorities. Yeah, that's important. You mentioned the contingency management piece, especially for MAT assistance. How does that work out? So I actually, I know there's federal regulations around that, which has always made contingency management difficult with MAT. You know, I think it's something like, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I think they only allow you to give like $80 a year or something, but efficacy and contingency management has to be like $500 a year. Does that apply to PAIR or do you know anything about those details? So, so we work very closely to comply with all the the various guidelines and and as you point out there's uh, a number of different guidelines um and and laws around how something like contingency management might be implemented um and so that's actually one of the benefits for the providers we work with is how do we deliver something that scientifically we know is very effective that there's been literature the early work was done at the university of connecticut over 20 years ago by initially was pioneered by Dr. Petri. And we take that, we use um, algorithms that have been validated um, and validated in our clinical trials as well. Um, and then we make sure that there's a set, a set of logic and rules that helps to um, confirm and, and make sure that um, the contingency, manage is, contingency management is being delivered relevant to um, state laws, to federal law, and um, to other guidelines. And then anything around drug of choice, so if I remember right with the research, like for example, for opioid use, contingency management is really efficacious, but for like cocaine or stimulants, it has no effect. Is that is that accurate, do you know? Uh, so I've seen some people think the opposite of that, which is stimulant use, particularly methamphetamine and cocaine is some of the areas where we see the highest uh, effectiveness um, for uh, contingency management, particularly methamphetamine use, there's really hardly anything other than contingency management that seems to work. And, and our data in methamphetamine and stimulant use is very strong, as well as cocaine for the 
efficacy of contingency management. Um, there has been um, some people who have questioned how efficacious is contingency management in um, OUD. And there was actually just a, a study that came out um, and there's been multiple studies that have looked at this. There was a study that came out uh, just in the past month that looked again at the question of does contingency management improve outcomes in opioid use disorder patients? And it was found that um, it does. And so as to the, you know, the degree of does it contingency management work better or equal or a little bit less in, say, opioids versus um, stimulants. So I think that's an area where more research is needed. Um, but at least across all the different substances uh, that we've seen, so cocaine, cannabis, alcohol, stimulants like methamphetamine, and opioids, um, that we see uh, pretty consistent improvements with contingency management. Oh, that's really good to know. I know I haven't read that research in a long time, so I'd be interested in reviewing it. Maybe if possible, I'll email you, and if you could email me a couple of the links to those, we could add them to the podcast notes, and then people could check them out, because I think that would be helpful. Absolutely. All right, so going back to the evidence-based piece here, so you got the contingency management, right, which is built in, and then CBT in general is considered to be evidence-based, but any other specific elements that you guys are incorporating into the therapeutic that is specifically what you guys use in terms of either the FDA or what you've seen in the research or what you've actually seen in the real world in terms of people using it, you know, other elements that are evidence-based? I, I think the last thing that I'll just um, mention is around specific um, patient-reported outcomes and assessments that are integrated to help provide more information back to the clinician and the clinical care team. So we talked about, for example, in Reset and Reset O, there's three evidence-based or scientific mechanisms of action. You know, there's the community reinforcement approach, which is the addiction-specific cardiobehavioral therapy. There's fluency training and there's contingency management. But there's also um, assessments like a standardized timeline follow-back and a cravings and trigger assessment that helps to provide information both to the patient themselves so they can see their own pattern of use, their patterns of triggers and cravings, and then provide that with the clinical care team. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic that this type of more real-time data is going to be more helpful for clinicians managing it. And like the, you know, you gave an example earlier, Nick, which I think I hear frequently as well from, from um, clinicians, which is, you know, a patient comes in and they haven't seen their clinician, for example, in a week or two, and they're like, well, how have things been going? And oftentimes there's a, a recall bias by all of us, which is, to share what's happened most recently rather than what's happened a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah. And so by having assessments that the patients complete more frequently as they use the PDT, that provides information to help the clinical care team and the patient themselves get a sense of like, am I making progress? Where am I struggling? Where is it best for us to focus our time? All right. And then you mentioned fluency training in there. I'm actually not familiar with that one. Do you just want to kind of define that? Sure. Fluency training is a means of assessing the proficiency of the patient uh, understanding and being able to deploy what they learn from their CBT. So for a patient to actually get the benefit, they need to develop what could be called a fund of knowledge where they can like use that use those insights in their day-to-day -day life, particularly under very stressful situations. And so fluency training is delivered in the form of a quiz, but it is a set of questions about the therapy lesson that the patient just completed. And it asks them in multiple ways, um, the similar concepts to make sure, do they understand it? And can they have recall and use of that intervention um, quickly and promptly under situations of stress? Hmm, okay. So, and there, is there a feedback loop built in the app then? So say they, it's clear that they didn't understand the concept. What happens from the app yes, perspective? Yes. So they actually don't get their contingency management reward unless they pass the quiz, which is the fluency training. So if they complete a therapy lesson, they have to pass the quiz. They actually have to get a hundred percent. If they miss one, they get shown the answer and it gets shuffled to the back of the deck. And then only once they complete um, complete that, then do they get their contingency management report. 
Got it. Okay. All right. And then, so we've talked quite a bit here about the, you know, the clinical care team. Have you guys used the app standalone at all, or is it always, or has it always been used in conjunction with, you know, a live provider? So we've looked at various, uh, what I would call, um, clinician extension models. So how much clinician, um, versus how much of the software treatment. And we've looked at all the way up to um, complete substitution. And I know of some clinics where they don't have, for example, any um, therapists. Uh, so for example, like a bridge clinic where patients are coming out of the ER or inpatient and they just have an NP or a physician who prescribes buprenorphine, um, but they don't have any therapists. And so they just use um, reset out. And so we have seen um, both that in the real world as, as well as in um, studies, different uh, kind of different levels of clinician extension. But in all of those, there's still a clinician in the loop. Um, it's just the question of how much, you know, face-to-face -face, um, counseling is the patient getting. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground here. We're really fascinated and I've been excited to learn about this because, like I said, before we started communicating, I really had no idea what a digital therapeutic actually entailed um, as a prescription. So really interesting all around. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to either point out about what PEAR is doing or digital therapeutics in general? I, I think the last thing, just in a summary, is that we are now seeing PDTs like Resido and Resido being really integrated to care um, in uh, and, you know, states across the U.S. And so this isn't something that is coming. It's something that can now be used. Um, and we're, we're continuing to receive really um, positive feedback from the uh, patients, from the clinicians, as well as from the payers that we've partnered with. Um, there is a huge need for continuing education, and there's a huge need for um, payers to embrace treating and reimbursing for care for patients with mental and behavioral health. Um, and as we look to the future, I'm excited also about adding other disease areas of focus. So for example, you, you know, I didn't get a chance to really touch on a whole lot, um, but the uh, opportunities to either treat patients with depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, PTSD, and many of those oftentimes are comorbid with addiction. And so we're doing a bunch of work in those disease areas, but also how do we um, work to provide complementary support or multimodal support across those different disease areas? So a patient with addiction and PTSD, or a patient with bipolar and um, uh, addiction can have uh, multiple treatment options that are really going to help um, overall treat the underlying cause and help them have a better, um, more satisfying, and also um, for the payers, a uh, less costly life. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of potential here. You know, I mean, I don't know if anyone listening follows Clayton Chris Christensen, but, um, you know, he talks a lot about healthcare and bringing that cost of care delivery down. And one of our challenges is scalability, right? You have really high cost professions that need to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one with the patients and it's not scalable, whereas software is, right? We can take that cost and we can scale it without increasing overhead, you know, significantly, thereby really reducing cost to the patient and also individualizing care, connecting people across care teams. So it's exciting to me to see different applications such as what Pear is doing to really come into the marketplace. And I think it's eventually gonna really revolutionize healthcare and, and care delivery, especially around mental health and addiction. You know, there's such a strong need there. And obviously there's a lot of value to the, the high cost, really intense modalities that exist, but at the same time, that's out of reach for a lot of people. You know, So finding these cheaper modalities and refining them and making them more efficacious over time, I think is just really the, the future. I don't think I could have said it better myself. So if someone wants to contact you or contact Pear, what would be the best way to do that? Sure. So um, uh, people can always go to our website. Um, our corporate website is www.peartherapeutics.com. Um, there is also a website for uh, our um, addiction therapeutics, which is reset, R-E-W-S-E-T, for F-O-R, recovery.com, all one word. 
Um, so those are, are some websites and there's also um, information to contact someone there. You, um, if someone also has interest in contacting either a member of the medical team, they can reach out to our Vice President of Medical Affairs, Michael Stevenson, um, which is M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N at payertherapeutics.com um, for any information. Well, thank you so much for your time, Yuri. Really appreciate it. I hope it was as interesting for the listeners as it was to me. I'm sure it will be. As always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we look forward to seeing you next time.